<laughs> yeah. All right. Time for some preaching. Man, good morning, Mercy Church. Good morning. Uh, we are launching into a summer series on the Ten Commandments. In case you can't tell, we got a hype about it. All right. Um, listen, I, it is. This is one of like those pinnacle spots in the whole Bible, the whole thing. Um, everything, think about this for a second. Everything you need to live that good life, like the life we're all rushing and trying to get, running that rat race for, everything you need for it is in one chapter of scripture right here. That's what we're looking into this summer. Y'all should see. In fact, I'm a little bit nervous about it. Really, I'm nervous because if everything is in here, I'm like, I only got about 10 weeks in this thing that I got to try and shine light on the deep riches of what's available to you in the Ten Commandments. And so my stack of uh, research books are crazy for this series, okay? I mean, because every single commandment is like God revealing his design for a whole area of your life. And so I got all, all these different books for all these different sermons. Uh, there's a couple that I actually want to tell you about um, that are like the easy reads that are really good. Like all books should be this size kind of thing. Um, one's by J.I. Packer. It's called Keeping the Ten Commandments. Look, you could read a book this summer. You see that right there? How awesome is that? Um, that's J.I. Packer, Keeping the Ten Commandments. I'm a reference it a lot. Another is a local guy, a Charlotte guy named Kevin DeYoung, and it's just called The Ten Commandments. Again, easy read um, and one that's, that I'll be referencing a lot. Now, here's what I know. I know we're all in here coming from a lot of different places, all right? Regardless of whether you have never actually read the Ten Commandments before or, uh, you know, you're one who's been in the Bible for years, been a student of the Bible for years, there is so much, so much for us in the Ten Commandments, all right? Exodus chapter 20 is where we're going to see them, um, but hang on, don't open your Bible yet, okay? Not just yet. I'll show you why. I got a little quiz for us, all right? I want us to take a little bit of a quiz because if these things are so life-giving, like if everyday vital important relationships find their guidance here in these things, I mean, we could do marriage seminars just in the Ten Commandments. We could do parenting seminars just in the Ten Commandments. There's deep truths about the kind of person that you're created to be, right? The kind of person you're meant to be to those around you. If all that's in there, this vision of someone who's inspiring others because you're so humbly resolved in who you are, that you can give your life away to others. If this code actually unlocks freedom from that whole keeping up with the Joneses, I believe the Ten Commandments are, I believe they're the secret to freedom from stress. Like I believe if you were to shift your life more in line with these commandments over the summer, that you actually would drop your blood pressure. You know, what would really happen to you, you'd be like, what's your summer health plan? Like, I'm trying the Ten Commandments, right? And would be like, you know, the Ten Health Commandments? No, in the Bible, ever heard of it? You know, that kind of thing. Like, this might be really, really good for you. And if that's all true, if you really, basically my challenge to you this summer is going to be lean into them. I know it's summer. I know we're all going on vacations. Not all of us, you know, different people go on vacations, different places. But man, do not miss these. Grab that podcast if you miss one, because this chapter of Scripture is more life transformative if you lean into it than like CrossFit and Whole30 and Marie Kondo all combined, right? It would be more transformative. Um, so I want to do something real quick. If you'll let me do a little exercise. Um, 
You know those workout commercials with the before and after pictures, right? I want you to be able to see how God changes you over the course of the summer as you lean into them. And the best way to see that is just to kind of take a moment and assess where you are with them right now, all right? So we're gonna do a little self-assessment before picture kind of moment, all right? No judgment, this is just for you to help you see where you are. So what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna give you 72 seconds to write down as many of the Ten Commandments as you can think of, okay? Now, don't look at the Ten Commandments. That will actually be breaking one of them, okay? So, a sneak peek. Um, so, don't look. Again, it's just for you. I'm going to give you 70. You take out your phone, take out your pen journal, whatever, and 72 seconds, write them down, extra bonus points if you get them in order. Ready, set, go. Yep. 72 seconds is the Jeopardy music twice. So... You got time. Now we're going to play one more time, right? Because y'all are still writing. Or, yeah, way to go. Better finish up. All right, pins down. All right, thumbs down. Here we go. All right, let's see how you did. Let's list them off. The first commandment, do not have other gods besides me. That's what we're going to look at today. The second one, do not make an idol for yourself. Do not misuse the name of the Lord your God. You might be thinking, take the name of your Lord your God in vain. That would be that third commandment. Remember the Sabbath is our fourth commandment, to keep it holy. Fifth commandment, honor mom and dad. All right. Sixth commandment, do not murder. If you wrote down do not kill, we'll get into the difference between the two when we get there, but that's the one everybody's like, I got that one, you know, if you didn't get anything else. Um, do not commit adultery. And uh, you know, there's a song by the Go Fish guys that say, went in our car a whole lot about the Ten Commandments. It's called the Ten Commandment Boogie. And um, number seven was, seven feels like heaven, but only with your husband or wife. So if you want a way to really remember it, that one's a freebie for you. Um, number eight, do not steal. Number nine, do not give false testimony against your neighbor. So do not lie might be the way that you wrote that one down. Number 10, of course, very familiar. Do not covet your neighbor's house. Do not covet your neighbor's wife. Do not covet your neighbor's male or female servant. Do not covet, covet his ox or donkey. Do not covet anything that belongs to your neighbor. Do not covet, right? All right, how'd you do? I imagine most of us, um, whether you're new or not to church, got at least one. Um, so just take note of how many you got, right? If you're over here thinking, I got all 10, I got them in order, that just means there's less excuse for why you break them, okay? <laughs> so calm down, all right, about yourself. Um, now, and I do wonder, I've done this quiz before, and people have written down things that actually weren't on there, right? Maybe that's you, like, 
Isn't cleanliness next to godliness? It is, but that's just good hygiene, all right? Not, not the commandments. Um, each weekend, what we're going to do is take pretty much the same basic sermon outline for us, all right? We're going to look at what the commandment says, and in that, included in that, we'll look at what the rest of the Bible has to say about the commandments, because y'all, so much of the Bible actually gets its lead, takes its cues from the Ten Commandments, and then we'll look at what it means to obey it and what happens when we break the commandment. We'll take one, one at a time. But this weekend is a little bit different. Because in addition to giving his people the Ten Commandments, God also, in his kindness towards us, gave us a key to understanding the Ten Commandments. And this key is vital. Without this key, you're going to misunderstand and misapply everything in here. Thankfully, he was kind enough to put that key right before he starts listing off the commandments, okay? Uh, It's nothing complicated, but it is very important, and often we miss it. So today, we're going to spend a good deal of time understanding the key to the Ten Commandments, which is in Exodus 20. You're now free to go over and turn there in your Bibles. Exodus 20, the key to understanding it is in verses 1 and 2. And so we'll spend some time there in verses 1 and 2, and then today we will also hit the first commandment, all right? So we're going to do a little work with the remainder of our time. All right, this is where we find our key. I'm going to read Exodus 20, 1 and 2. By this point, you can tell I'm a little bit excited. Y'all ready? All right, let's do it. Here we go, Exodus 20, 1 and 2. Then God spoke all these words, saying, I am, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. I think even noticing that the Ten Commandments do not start with a command might catch some of you. And the point is that before God tells them what to do, he tells them who he is and what he has done. Super, super important that you take these in that order. God wants to make sure that Israel's obedience is a response to who he is and what he's done for them. Same is true for you and I. At the heart of Christianity is not what we do for God, but what he has done for us. Listen, here's your key for the Ten Commandments. You want to write them down. We do not obey God to earn salvation. We are saved by him, and so we obey. We don't obey to earn it. We don't obey to earn it. We are saved by him, so we obey. The order is critical. Now listen, God, what he's doing in verses one and two, what he's also doing is summarizing the first 19 chapters of Exodus in one verse, all right, or at least verse two. Since we are picking up here in the middle of Exodus, let me recap it for you. After all, this is the story the rest of the Bible uses as an illustration for God's deliverance of us. This is always the one it goes back to. Here's the situation. As Exodus starts, God's people are in slavery in Egypt. They're oppressed. They're being worked day and night as slaves to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, who oppresses them so harshly, listen, because he fears them. The Israelites outnumber the Egyptians, and if his enemies attack, he fears they will rise up against him, and it is fear of them that leads to his oppression of them. Well, God hears their cries and raises up a deliverer who's going to lead them out. He's going to lead him out of Egypt. It's the man named Moses. A little bit of origin story on Moses. He was born Hebrew, but he's raised Egyptian, right? Then he goes off and he kills an Egyptian as a young man. Pharaoh puts out a hit on him for it. So he flees, runs out into the wilderness. And then God, while he's out there in the wilderness, God says, Moses, I'm going to make you my deliverer. You're going to be the one that go gets all of my people up out of Egypt. And Moses says, I don't know about that. I mean, he's, he's very hesitant. 
and God confronts them again. And Moses says, okay, well, when I go in there to your people and when I go to Pharaoh and they say, who sent me, what should I say his name is? In Exodus 3.14, God replies to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you're to say to the Israelites. And then you go say it to Pharaoh. I am has sent me to you. In fact, a couple verses after this, he's gonna say, that's the name that I wanna be remembered by for all generations. It's just I am. And that's big because what does our key verse say? Our key verse, God starts the commandments the same way he started the deliverance. I am the Lord your God. So Moses goes in, he says to Pharaoh, I am has says, let my people go so they may worship me. And because I am never changes, his promise is still true to his people today. He is not I was, as if he was only present for Israel. He is not I will be, as if he's only up there in heaven and we gotta deal with things in this world, but once this life is done, we'll finally get to be with God. No, he is I am. Past, present, and future, he remains simply I am. I told you, you're gonna understand the commandments. You gotta see that what he's saying in verse two, the key is who God is and what he's done for us. Who is he? He is, I am the Lord, your God. I am your God. This is God talking um, in the language that the Bible calls covenantal language. It's God saying, He's got this very particular and unique relationship with his people, Israel. In fact, God's common, most common way of describing his relationship to his people is like he is their husband. And this unique relationship is really important to get your head around because it's gonna help you understand how he feels about us and how he relates to us and how we're supposed to relate to him. Especially, it helps make sense of the first commandment and really all the others we're gonna look at. Um, I got a wedding coming up this summer that I'm really excited about. Some friends known for a while. All right, I'm pretty pumped to perform it. So Lynn and Mark. All right, now imagine we're up there and in Mark's wedding vows, Mark says, I promise to be a lawfully wedded husband. Now, what is Lynn thinking when he says, a lawfully wedded husband? She's thinking, time out, point of order. Whose husband are you promising to be? He's got to say, I promise to be your husband. Because his identity as a husband is directly bound to his relationship with her. He can't just be a husband without being her husband. And God is saying, I'm not just some detached deity. I am bound to a people. There is no richer declaration of God's love link with us than the simple phrase, your God. And in Christ, he's your God today. The promises of his presence are all yes to us in Christ he says he will fiercely and sacrificially love you until the end of time because in Christ, he is now and forever your God. Let me ask you something. Do you know him like that? You relate to him like that? Is he your God? And I know maybe the problem is I say, do you relate to him like you relate to your spouse? Uh, if you're married, you might say, yeah, I think I probably do. You know, we talk for about three minutes a day and otherwise we kind of coexist running alongside of each other. Now that's commitment, right? If a marriage is like that, that's commitment, but it's dysfunctional, isn't it? It's dysfunctional commitment and God is not satisfied with a committed but dysfunctional relationship 
By the way, if that is where your marriage is right now, it might be, just might be because you were putting your spouse in the place of God and expecting your spouse to fulfill all your deepest needs and your spouse let you down because they never should have been asked to do all of that. And if you will turn your heart and mind back to the Lord over the course of the summer and these commandments and give your worship to him, you might actually be able to fix some of that dysfunctionality in your marriage. But again, that's for a marriage sermon coming later. I told you the stuff is packed. But I want you to look. Look at the proof um, of what he has done. Look at verse two, our key verse, again, telling us who he is, what he has done. What has God done? He's delivered his people from captivity. Pick back up the Exodus saga. Moses says, Pharaoh, you gotta let God's people go so they can worship him. Pharaoh says, no thanks. So I am sends 10 plagues to show Pharaoh how much more powerful I am is. Pharaoh doesn't turn. He stiffens his back, pokes out his chest and says, just plays the note card, right? Not happening. And so then... These plagues come, and eventually, the final one, God kills every firstborn Egyptian boy, and then Pharaoh lets them go. But then he tries to chase them, tries to hunt them down, and so Moses says, I am, I need help, and I am provides it, destroys Pharaoh's army. And so the book is called Exodus because it is the story of God, I am, delivering his people up out of slavery. Y'all, what what I want you to see is when he says, I'm the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt, out of the place of slavery, what he's saying is that he is a deliverer. And if he can deliver 2 million people from slavery, if he can command the sea to part so that he can deliver his people to safety, if he can then pull the sea back together to destroy that army, and he's still the same God today, it is biblically faithful, it is pastorally imperative that I say to you, he can deliver you today. From addiction, from depression, from sin, from whatever it is that is enslaving you today, he can deliver you. Because just like he wanted Israel and just like he came for Israel because he wanted them, he's come for you because he wants you. He is a God who sets captives free. Well, they go and they set off in the wilderness, now free from Pharaoh, but they need to eat. They need to drink. And so what happens? The Lord provides quail and manna every day so they can eat. God himself was the first Chick-fil-A providing this stuff. It was a waffle manna. It was delicious. And what you got to see is that I am is not just a deliverer. He's also a provider. You, You need to hear. He's still a provider today. Philippians 4, my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and his glory in Christ Jesus. So do you trust him as provider? I mean, do you actively trust him? Do you believe he'll supply your needs? I had a, um, a dear friend of mine, Rodell, grew up in Cuba, grew up in the kind of poverty where you just don't know if you're gonna eat today. I know a lot of us don't face that. Some of us do. A lot of us don't though, uh, but he did. That's what he grew up in. And he, he recalled to me a time where he said, you know, it's dinner time. My dad pulls us around the table and says, all right, let's pray to thank God for his provision. And there's no food. And Rodell said he was mad. Right? He's mad because he's like, he's mad at God, mad at his dad because we're thanking God for provision that we don't see. There ain't no provision there. And he said they finished praying and within seconds of praying, there's a knock at the door and there's a family there saying, hey, it seemed like the Lord was telling us to bring you food um, for the next few days. And so this is for you guys. And Rodell's like, it was just this little reminder in a very important time in my childhood that God is I am. Maybe that's not you with food, but he cares about your needs and he will provide for them. He might withhold some things you desire, but he will only do so because he is providing grace. 
And then later, this army called the Amalekites attacks, and God says, nah, that ain't gonna work. I got you. He obliterates the Amalekites, even says they'll never be remembered. That's why when I say Amalekites, you're like, what? Right? That's just God fulfilling his promise. He is the protector. And you need to still, you need to hear that today, he's still the protector of his people. Paul says in Thessalonians, the Lord is faithful. He will strengthen and guard you from the evil one. What I'm trying to show you as I recount Israel's story is that God never changes. He is still deliverer. In fact, language of the New Testament, specifically Romans 6, is that Christ has delivered us from slavery to sin. Ephesians 2 that Charlie read earlier says, while we were still sinners, Christ died in our place. And after we believe that, only after, then we walk in the new life that he's called us to. But so many people miss the heart of the commandments and the whole message of the Bible because they think Christianity is a moral code about stuff you're supposed to do. And they stop there. But listen, at the heart of Christianity is not what we do for God. It's what God has done for us. The gospel, the good news is called news because it announces, it announces something that's happened, what God has done for us. He's seen our sin, our rebellion against his law, where we choose our way over his way. And even in that moment, especially in that moment, he delivers news. I love you. Now, God has said that the payment for sin is death. That's justice. Yet at the same time, he loves us too much to let us die. So he sends Jesus to die in our place, a perfect sacrifice so that sins, past, present, and future are paid for. And in his resurrection, he defeats death. So now, y'all, acceptance by God can't be based on performance because we all fail. Y'all, there's a certain kind of humor in the the way, a little bit of tongue-in-cheek in in the way we titled this series, 10 Ways to Be Perfect, because for 10 weeks, you're going to see how you fail (laughs) at these, how you fall short. Even the murder one, Jesus will show you how you fall short even there. We can never measure up. So how how do we get acceptance by God? It has to be based not on our performance, but on Christ's performance. And God looks at Christ and said, okay, he's perfect. He's worthy. I'll accept his payment and your debt will be satisfied. That's Christianity. We are not called to obey so that we can be accepted. He says, in Christ, you're accepted so you can obey. And in Christ, that same God will be very present with his people here and now. You see, only when you read the commandments with the right perspective of who God is and what he's done, Only then can you really understand them correctly. That's why verse two is so key to it all. In fact, um, DeYoung, in the book I recommended to you, he says, look, it's not like God comes to his people while they're in slavery in Egypt and says, okay, guys, I have 10 commands. I want you to take these. I'm gonna be back in five years. And if you get your life right, then in five years, I'm gonna bring you out. No, that's not what he does, but that's how people view Christianity. God has rules, and if I follow the rules, then he will love me, and then he will save me. But that's not what happened in Exodus, right? The Israelites were an oppressed people, and God said, I hear you. I will save you because I love you, and when you are saved, freed, and forgiven, then I'm going to give you a new way to live. We need to hear it again. Salvation is not the reward for obedience. It's the reason for obedience. Jesus doesn't say, if you keep my commandments, then I will love you. He says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments, All of our doing is because of what he has done for us. The Ten Commandments are not instructions on how to get out of Egypt. They're rules for a free people on how to stay free. 
We are redeemed. We are rescued from certain death. And now under the good authority of the one we were always created to follow. And in that, he lays out rules of life. Rules like a good father laying out rules for his children and how to flourish in the freedom that he's provided for us. The Ten Commandments, key. We do not obey to earn salvation. Listen, if you get nothing else these 10 weeks, get this, it'll revolutionize your life. We do not obey to earn salvation from God. We're saved by him, so we obey. That leads us to our first commandment, verse three. Verse three. And y'all, it's warm up in here. I'm sweating a little bit. Here we go. Verse three. Do not have other gods besides me. With each commandment in the series, like I said, we're gonna try and do three um, basic things. What does it say? What's it really saying here? What does it mean to obey it? And what happens when we break it? So what does this say? It's pretty straightforward, we would think. I think we're gonna see that for most of them. We're gonna go, oh, that's pretty, I mean, it's brief, pretty straightforward and, and kind of. And the reason I say kind of is because it's actually gonna be in every one of them, gonna be a whole lot deeper and richer than what they see on the surface, what they seem on the surface. Uh, this commandment, like several, are written in the negative, right? Telling you what to do by telling you what not to do. The positive form is the great commandment in Deuteronomy 6 and Jesus quoting it over in Matthew 22. Jesus gets asked, teacher, what's the greatest commandment in all the law? And he says, well, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. The positive form of the first commandment is love God with everything you have. So much so that there's no room for you to love anything else as your God. You can love other things, of course. I mean, right after this, Jesus is gonna say, love your neighbor as yourself. He's gonna say, love your enemies, love your family, love your friends. But you can only worship love one thing, and that's God. I think back to our, our friends, Mark and Lynn, who are getting married. If Mark says to her, Lynn, listen, I promise you, they're up in their vows, you know, I promise you, and he's clearly had some trouble already with his vows, and so now he's got it together, and he's like, I promise you, I'm gonna make you my favorite wife. Mm. Something a little wrong with that, right? Not gonna work. Because Lynn is not up there. She's not down for being one of his wives. And you and I would not call her intolerant for that. We'd say a healthy sign of marriage is exclusivity. She should expect him to love her and her alone with everything he has. That's what Jesus is saying God wants with us. No other gods is no other objects of worship. See, when you keep the first commandment, here's what will start happening. You will be actively and fully satisfied in God. Actively and fully satisfied in God. This is what it'll look like to keep it and who he is, what he's done for you. And as you follow this command, it'll change you inside, it'll change you out. On the inside, you'll have more peace. You'll have more purpose because you're finally finding your worth and your value and your significance in something that is strong enough to carry that weight instead of in all these other things that we look to. Something so secure, it'll never let you down. And then externally, you'll start to change how you begin to interact with people in the world around you. Because when tough times come, you're not gonna be as shaken by them because you are secure in God, who you know is a deliverer and a provider and a protector. People are gonna be more blessed by being around you because you don't need them to validate your own self-worth. So you'll be able to just give. And most importantly, your relationship with God is gonna grow deeper and stronger. See, the assumption built into the first commandment is one that 
might be a little abrasive if you've never heard it before. You will make something your God, all right? Everybody, human nature, everybody worships something. You hear that phrase, other gods, and maybe you think about, I don't know, maybe your mind kind of goes to Hinduism or to another religion, something where there's like multiple gods. But if we can see that we each look to things or to people to find security and meaning, that we give our ultimate allegiance always, we give it to something, we'll see that we actually make all kinds of gods. Next week, we're gonna talk, obviously, in the second commandment, a lot more about how we make and then worship false gods. But because we are hardwired for worshiping, we'll worship something. We'll give our ultimate allegiance to God or we will give it to a God substitute. And when we give our devotion, our hope, all those things to something other than the one true God, what'll happen, y'all, is our lives will deteriorate. They will suffer in some way because just like cars were made to operate with gas in the tank, so we will only function properly when our worship is given to the one true God. The thesis of the whole Bible is to show you that you've lifted up and latched onto some other gods besides the one true God, and that's the source of your problems. It's the source of who you've become, of why you act the way that you act, and why you have the problems you do. Your gods, that's what sets your motivations, determines your behaviors, your emotions, and ultimately what lets you down. Now, what are these gods? Well, I'm gonna give you some diagnostic questions that you can go back and really do some self-assessment. Again, I want this to be really practical for you. I wanna see change in your life through this series. So let me ask you some questions. What are your gods? Well, what do you feel you need in order for life to be good? What do you feel like you need in order for life to be good? I can tell you mine. I need my bank account to stay at a certain level. And as long as it doesn't drop below that level, I'm good. I need my kids not to be sick. And if I know my kids are safe, not sick, then, I, then life is good. I need Mercy Church to go well. Because as long as my work is going well, then life is good. What are you, what are you hearing in that? Life is good. I, I, I'm okay. Things are okay. I'm going to be, that's me putting my security onto something other than the one true God. Let me ask you another question. What makes life worth living for you? When you dream about the future, what do you dream about obtaining? Here's one that'll mess with you. Last question I'll give you today. Where do you go for comfort? Be amazing how revealing that is. You can make, like when I say comfort, another word for that is escape, right? Where do you escape? You can make Netflix a God, for sure. You can make comfort food a God, for sure. Again, we'll dig a lot more into it next week, but you gotta understand it because keeping the first commandment leads to keeping the others. Breaking the first commandment leads to breaking all the others because all sin, all disobedience to God's commands is first a worship problem. So your answers to questions like these will reveal what you may have moved into the place of worship. And it can be good things. I mean, think about things I listed off that, that I know I worship. What happens so often is that God gives us good things. James 1 says every good and perfect gift comes down from above, right? We keep it in its place as a gift from God. It's good. But over time, we start to find our happiness in the gift and not the giver. And that's when it moves in our hearts from being one of God's gifts to being a competitor with God. I mean, again, like I said, I know it's so, here's how I know when I've started worshiping mercy as a God. I look at my symptoms. That's what those questions are about when my happiness and my contentedness is primarily driven by how much success our church has, I got a worship problem. 
When my fear and anxiety is most heightened by any sign of failure, I got a worship problem. My own church, when that happens, has moved from being one of God's gifts to one of God's competitors. And when I worship something other than God, even good things like his church, my life suffers. And so do those around me. And those emotions, those are smoke from a fire, y'all. You don't focus on the smoke. You follow the trail of smoke back to the fire. And when you do that, you'll arrive at the altars of the idols you're worshiping. If you find yourself being angry a lot, a smoke from a fire, follow the trail. What makes you angry all the time? It's because your real life, maybe, it's because your real life isn't how you thought it should be by now, right? Because you deserve more or different than what you have. If your soul is not satisfied that in Christ, you've got way more than you ever deserved, it's because you've got another God and that God's not delivering and that's why you're angry. If you find yourself obsessing over work, follow the trail of smoke. Why are you so willing to sacrifice your family and your friendships on the altar of work? Why do you take performance reviews so heavily and so personally? It's because you may work your God and it's not delivering. Maybe you obsess over a relationship. Again, smoke. If you want a shortcut to discovering what other gods you might be worshiping, listen, <laughs> ask someone close to you who you trust to point them out to you. That is gonna feel brutal. But we are usually not as good at hiding our gods as we think that we are. But we can be really good at being deceived by them. And listen, every time we sin, every time we break any of these commandments, we're breaking the first one. Every sin is a form of breaking the first commandment. Romans 6 says, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The commandments represent a problem, right? We can't keep them. The effect of sin on us is that even after we know them, y'all, this is gonna be the thing. By the end of this summer, you're gonna know them all. Even after we know them, and even after we know that other things won't work as gods, we still go after them. We still try and worship them. And God says the wage for that, the payment, what we earn from that is death, spiritual and physical. Spiritually, we're separated from God because if you think about our running illustration today, sin is adultery. It's saying something else is my authority here. So I am rejecting God and choosing it. And God says that's gonna lead to suffering here on earth. And it's gonna ultimately grant you what you want, which is separation from God now and forever. And the power of the gospel is that right in there, where we are running from the very thing that we know we will find fulfillment in, running two things that we know we won't find fulfillment in, as messed up as that moment is, the power of the gospel is that even then, when we didn't first love God, he loved us. He gave himself for us as a payment for that sin so that we can be reconciled to him today. Your sin doesn't have to define you. That slavery of things past doesn't have to define you. We get to be a free people and worship our God in that freedom. We're gonna see that these, these commandments are like lanes he creates to experience the freedom that he has created us for. You will find freedom and joy in these commandments as you worship the Lord your God. What do you do if you've broken it? You receive. You turn, you lean back into the gospel and you receive God's love again. Today, worship again and be free. I wanna let you respond in prayer. So if you would, if you would bow your head, close your eyes. Um, if you don't like praying, that's okay. Um, this is just a time for 
us to reflect on what God has said in his word and what he's calling us, how he's calling us to respond. And the first one is, the first question I want you to just take a moment and ask God to reveal to you is what other gods have you taken? What other gods are you giving your worship, your life's worship to? Ain't no sense in playing the church game in here. This is your time to respond to God and his word. What have you given your worship to? Confess it to him. Maybe you need to lay it down and say, God, I give it back. I lay it down, even a good gift, I lay it down. I wanna worship you and you only. And if you've never come to this moment before, Jesus says, John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He says, when you couldn't earn it, he went and paid for your sin so that you might be able to receive salvation. So if you're not a Christian, you can receive it today. Say, I believe that Christ died for my sin. I receive that today. I believe he rose from the grave, giving me victory over death, reconciling me back to God. As you continue to pray, Joey, our campus associate director here, Joey Schwartz is gonna come. He'll be closing us out of this prayer, but you continue to take a moment. Seek the Lord, talk to him, confess to him, turn back to him.